Join me as I uh, pray for this uh, service. Father, we ask now you to bless this uh, message to come. Uh, give me ear, uh, the words to say and give us all ears to hear again that we may be reminded of the good news found only in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, I have a confession to make, and no pun intended, actually, on that. This is actually a harder one for me to, to preach on than the other one, than the, the sermon from the first service. I am not used to taking a section from the confession and then preaching on it. I'm used to teaching from it, but preaching from it just has a different feel for me or for me. So I thought what I would do is really just focus on this idea of that that first little section of section one where it says a lawful oath is part of religious worship. And remind us that this confession, of course, the Westminster Confession, is for the church. Individuals ought to believe it and read it and study it, but it's meant to be understood corporately, not just individually. And so even this section is a reminder of that. When we talk about oaths or when we talk about vows, there is a connection to worship, much as we're doing here this morning and much as God's people were doing in Exodus 24. So that I really want to focus on that. I'm going to probably bring in a couple of themes throughout uh, chapter 22 of the Confession but I'll let whoever comes next really get into the details uh, if they so choose uh, on chapter 22. So you notice the two-point outline, and really uh, it's not a strict outline. I'm going to be going back and forth and uh, not preaching this the way I did from 1 Thessalonians. But notice we're considering an oath in relation to others and an oath in relation to God. And really, this fits well with the sermon text, ministering to one another, right? Because the point is, we get everybody involved so that we can better worship the Lord. So briefly, what's going on in chapter 24 of Exodus? Well, this is really the covenant. We, In theological terms, we will call this the Mosaic Covenant, with Moses being the mediator. But this is a covenant, a binding agreement between God and and the nation of Israel. He had just brought them out of Egypt in a miraculous way after 400 years of living in Egypt, and with the last number of years being especially hard. But you recall, we can go back to a earlier covenant, the covenant with Abraham, where God had told Abraham, this land that all Abraham does, by the way, if you've ever looked at Abraham's life after the Lord calls him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, Abraham spends the rest of his life walking up and down the promised land. That's all he does. Up and down, up and down, surrounded by enemies, although he gets along with them thanks to God's protection. But the only piece of the promised land that Abraham ever actually can call his own is the burial plot for his wife Sarah and then later for himself. That's it. That's all he owns. And the Lord would tell him, this land that you're looking at and scoping out and kind of scouting, if you will, your descendants are going to get this. And of course, Abraham was told this before he even had one descendant, 
to follow. All of this one day won't be yours, won't even be your son's. You're going to have to wait for 400 years until the iniquity of the Amorites, and that's just kind of code for the Canaanites, the people in the land, and until it reaches its fullness. So 400 years, God's people have been waiting for this time to get into the promised land. So they go into Egypt. The Lord brings them out of Egypt, uses Moses to bring them out. And of course, you know, I'm sure you know this, that chapter 20 is a record of the Ten Commandments. This is where you have the stipulations, if you will, summarized in these Ten Commandments. And you remember how it starts. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So before you get into command one and two and following, you get this declaration of who God is and what he has done for his people. In between the Ten Commandments, you have some other laws that the Lord would give to Moses that would become part of this covenant document, as it were. But finally, in chapter 24, we have the covenant confirmed. It's kind of a interesting way that God does this, but if you recall, God has descended onto the top of Mount Sinai, just the top, and it's very loud. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's probably hailstorms like we've had, right? There's trumpets blasting. God's voice is so loud that the people beg God to keep his distance, and they say to Moses, you go up there and talk to him. We don't want to go up there. One of the few times the Israelites actually said something intelligent, by the way. They were right, because God came down in all of his glory. And by the way, that is a preview of things to come. Because when Jesus returns, he's not just going to stop on the top of a mountain and say, set up boundaries down there and, you know, don't go and pass that boundary. Jesus is going to set foot on the entire world and everything is going to change. This is a little preview of that to come. So God is on top. Moses alone is able to go and speak with God. And then Moses would come down to the people and he would proclaim the words of this covenant. And so notice two times what happens in this section. Moses has the uh, the covenant document here. He's written it down. God has written it in stone. And he's proclaiming this to the people. And so Moses proclaims it. And then if you were back there, if I was back there, what would we all say? All of this we will do. And notice that happens twice. So what have they done? They've given their word. They've made a promise before the Lord. That's what a covenant is. They've given their word before each other. So here's the ministering to one another part. And then they're proclaiming to God. We will obey everything that you have told us to do. And they do it twice. And the second time, uh, at the end of verse 7, just in case it wasn't clear enough, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, every time I read this section, I think, yeah, right. Because you know what's coming. But before we get to what's coming, we have to see what they just agreed to do. Animals have been sacrificed, blood has been shed, uh, burnt offerings and uh, peace offerings and so on. And Moses is taking the blood of the covenant, because blood is shed when a covenant is made with the Lord like this. 
and he takes some of it and he sprinkles it on the altar and he, sp he sprinkles it on these 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes. So everybody is a part of this. And then after they say, all this we will do, well, if you're in the front row, you're going to get messy because that blood is now sprinkled on you. The guilt of that blood is on you if you don't keep your word. And I have to wonder, and I do every time I read this, how seriously did they really take this? And I don't think they took it with the seriousness they should have. Even after hearing the Ten Commandments and after hearing some of these other laws, they seemed a little overly eager to say, yes, all this we will do, without really thinking about it. Because what happens if you don't? Well, the wages of sin is death. Those wages have to be paid. And you have those sacrifices as a visual, uh, visible reminder of that. Now, you see God's grace in all of this, of course, because he didn't even have to enter into a covenant, except that in his grace he said he would. And so he kept his word. And he enters into this covenant. And you have Moses and Aaron and Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu. And then 70 of the elders actually able to go up on the mountain and have a fellowship meal. And there's the Lord with them. And the only description we get of the Lord here is of the pavement of sapphire under his feet. We don't know what God looks like. That's why we're told not to make any images of him. But we have the pavement, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So they gave their word. They gave it before one another, and they gave it before the Lord. Now, if one or two or many break their word we know it's going to impact their relationship with the lord is that going to impact their relationship with each other and of course it does and this is a reminder that when we as church members and of course i'm not a member here but as church members when one sins maybe nobody else finds out about it it's still going to somehow impact the congregation I've heard this analogy from, uh, from coaches, and I think it makes sense. When you have one player on the team who isn't practicing like they should, that impacts the ability of the rest of the team to properly perform. And, of course, we're not talking about working our way to heaven, but still it impacts everybody. So they've given their word. They've made a promise. A lawful oath, as the confession says, is a part of religious worship whereupon just occasion the person swearing, swearing solemnly calleth God to witness. You probably heard the phrase, as God is my witness. I would encourage all of us, be very careful when you say that. Lying is bad enough. We ought to be people of, of truth. We shouldn't be the type of people that the only way you know if they're telling the truth is you get them to promise. Do you promise that what you're telling me is true? Don't be that type of person. And Jesus talks about that in his Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
because you had some who were trying to get past keeping their word by saying, well, I didn't make a promise, therefore I don't really have to keep my word. No, say it and mean it. But there are occasions where an oath is necessary, or maybe it's a, a church discipline case. Or we, we talk of membership vows, where you're giving your word before one another and before the Lord. Remember the seriousness of that. Because when you say, I'm going to do this, and you're telling the Lord and you're telling fellow believers, I'm going to do this, make sure you do it. We need to treat that with the respect uh, that it deserves. Now, you know what happens to the Israelites, of course. You have Aaron and his two sons, the priests, hearing these words, agreeing to these words. But if you turn just a ch few chapters ahead to chapter 32, not a mere 40 days later in what has happened. Where is this Moses? He went up into the top of the mountains, into the cloud. He's disappeared. We don't know where he is, if he's even coming back. Maybe the Lord just took him up into heaven. And we're supposed to figure things out and do things on our own. And so I'll just summarize, but you know what happens. Aaron listens to the people, takes all the gold that they have, melts it down, and of course out jumps this golden calf. At least that's the excuse Aaron would say to Moses. I don't know. You know the people. They gave me the gold. I put it in the fire, and this calf just burst out somehow. But what does Aaron say? about this golden calf. This is at the uh, end of verse 4 of chapter 32. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and he made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What have they just done? They've broken their word. That oath that they took where blood was shed in a solemn occasion. I mean, when animals are being slaughtered and you have the blood being sprayed upon you, you ought to take that with some seriousness. Not a mere, you know, just over a month later, they're already breaking it. And the confession will say, uh, to make sure this is section two, and I won't get into too much detail, but the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear, and therein it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Don't casually promise the Lord that you're going to do something and then not do it. And so what you have here in this occasion of the golden calf, you have the first command being broken. So there's law number one, no other gods. Behold your gods. You have command number two being broken, don't make any images. Well, here's an image. And then you have command number three being broken because you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. They took it in vain because they made a promise and they broke it. And then they would dare to look at this golden calf and say, behold your God. <clears throat> That's taking the name of God in vain. To the second generation of the Israelites, 
And this is found in Numbers chapter 30, and I'll just read the first two verses. After that first generation is getting ready to perish, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, because they didn't even learn from the example of the golden calf, and you know the story. They went into the promised land. They said, it's too big. Are the giant, there's giants in the land, and they have chariots. They have the best military in the world. There's no way that the God who just defeated Egypt could defeat these guys. Just caused the Red Sea to part, but there's no way he can handle a few giants in the land. And so the Lord said, all right, this generation's going to perish. I'm going to bring in the next generation. And here's what Moses says in Numbers 30. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. If you make an oath, if you make a vow, you tell the Lord, you tell each other you're going to do something, and you use the Lord's name, make sure you do it. Because you already has, have examples, Moses says, back in Exodus of what happens when you don't. In Deuteronomy 10, and I won't read from it, but as Moses is preparing, again, that second generation to enter the land, and he calls upon the people to obey the Lord, to love him with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Part of that loving the Lord is keeping your vows. It's very specifically said. And if you uh, want to do this later, uh, go to BibleGateway.com, or if you still use a written concordance, you can do this as well. And look up the word vow or vows. You'll be amazed how many times you actually find it. It's all over the place. It's all over the Psalms. Keeping our word. When we give our word and when we use the Lord's name, we are to treat this with the utmost seriousness with which it deserves. And lest we think that's just an Old Testament issue, that, you know, God was kind of an angry God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's all grace and love and warm, fuzzy feelings. You know the story in Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. And I'll, I'll again, try to summarize so we don't go too long here. But you have an example at the end of Acts 4 of a man named Barnabas who sold a field and he took the proceeds from the field and he gave it all to the church. So he gave his word and he said, here is the proceeds from the land I just sold. I want to give it to the church. This is all of it. And when you make a promise like that, that money, those proceeds are now holy. They're set apart for a holy purpose. So you better not take back your word on that. And Barnabas did not. Well, then you know what happens with Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. They liked probably the praise that Barnabas was getting and others. Look how good they look when they're giving all of this to the church. We want to do that too. And so they sold their piece of property, but they kept back some of it for themselves. And the point being is when they devoted this to the Lord, they said this is everything when in reality it was only part. They broke their 
vow to the Lord. And that impacts the rest of the congregation. Because what happens to Ananias and Sapphira? Peter will confront them both, and both of them will fall dead in the church. Does that impact the rest of the congregation? I've always felt bad because if if we were to have more time, we could look into this. But there are some young men that when Ananias, Ananias fell dead in the church, these young men had to take the body out and bury it. And then the way Luke writes this, it says uh, in verse 7, after an interval of three hours, here comes the wife. She had no idea what happened. She lies. Peter confronts her. She falls dead in the church. And then the picture is uh, these young men just come back into the church. And here's Sapphira dead in the church. And they have to go and bury her. Are they impacted by broken vows? They are. I don't think those young men planned to do uh, a burial of two bodies that day. They came to worship, and look what happens. But there's a reason God did this. Because in the middle of chapter 5 of Acts, it says the impact that the, the church was having on the city of Jerusalem, it says none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So the point was, God's name, the seriousness of God's name, was starting to impact the community. And they realized, this is not just one more place you go and say, oh yeah, Zeus, I'll offer you a sacrifice. Apollo, I'll offer you, you know, and and all these different gods. Oh, the God of Israel, yeah, I'll offer you something and then we'll just move on. You treat his name with seriousness. And that's what's being taught here in Acts chapter 5. When we give our word, make sure you keep it. When we say to the Lord, I'm going to do such and such a thing, make sure you do it. And the, the confession will even talk about, even if it costs you more than you expected, you still do it. Because you have given your word, and God's reputation is at stake. And God cares about the holiness of his name. Now, I can't just end. Of course, a preacher never ends, right? But we have to have good news. Because, again, I look at this, and I looked at the confession and thought, have I ever broken my word? Oh, yes, more than once. Why am I still standing here breathing? Only because God is incredibly merciful and forgiving. And so I want to remind us, Look to Christ, confess your sins when you realize, I did not keep my word like I should have. Ask him for forgiveness, and he will forgive. That's why we're all here this morning. This would be an empty building otherwise if God wasn't so incredibly gracious. And we look to Christ who gave his word, who left heaven, who took on flesh, who obeyed every command in this word perfectly, and then took the punishment for us when we didn't. But that's what enabled Jesus to be that perfect sacrifice. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So don't give up in despair when you think, oh, I am a horrible sinner. You are, but look to Christ who died for sinners like you and like me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your incredible Uh, mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord.
for sending your son Jesus to be our only sacrifice. Father, forgive us for where we fall short. Restore us and empower us by your spirit to live a life of godliness this day forth and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.